Go ahead and, and move into the sermon. We're going to be in Genesis 1. And we are, we're focusing just the whole Sunday, sanctity of life. And, and it is such a blessing to have, have people like Carolyn, have people like Amelia in our church who, um, who are actively working in ministries designed to share the hope of the gospel with men, with women, uh, and to prevent abortions. And I do, I just want to encourage you, February 20th, set that night aside. Uh, that'll just be a neat night where we come together to, to hopefully be encouraged and equipped uh, but really know how can we shine brightly in this world and how can we better understand uh, why women w- would have an abortion, what leads them to there, and, and how can we come alongside them and really show them the support and the hope that they need. Uh, so February 20th, make sure you're here for that. Um, before we jump into our text today, um, I have uh, one, one thing I need you to know and, and two favors to, to ask of you. Um, one is the goal today is not condemnation. I hope you know that. Um, I know in a room this size, uh, there's, there's people who have had abortions here. Uh, we're told that one out of four women by the age of 25 or by the age of 40 will have an abortion. And, and so, so that's, a, that's a large statistic. And so we very much know that there are women here who have had and, are, and have been tempted uh, with abortion. So our, our goal here as we preach is, well, we don't condone, but we're in no means bringing condemnation. We want, if anything, for us all just to taste and see the hope of the gospel and the comfort that we have in Jesus Christ. So, so that's what I want you to know just as we begin uh, the first favor I have to ask, I'm not really asking a favor, I'm telling you, I, so don't think of this as, a, don't think of this as optional. Um, that's, that's how we operate, right? Um, I just want you to pray, and we should do this every Sunday, but especially on a daily, I just want you to pray for the church throughout this whole time. Pray for yourself, but pray for the church. When we start talking about abortion, there's so much emotion so much guilt, so much shame, so much that comes. And Satan wants nothing more than to blind us and deafen us to the hope of the gospel. And so just pray for yourself. Pray for those in this room that we would truly hear the truth of God's word, the hope of God's word, the grace that God offers us in Jesus. And lastly, I just ask that you pray for me because I feel like every time I come into this topic, I just, I just cry. Um, so I just need prayer that I can actually speak and this be intelligent. Um, uh, so I just ask for your prayers because I just want the truth of God's word to be proclaimed at this moment. Um, so we're going to be in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 31. And I'm just going to go ahead and ask you to stand and we're going to read. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Thanks, Karen. Um, And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just come to you right now. And we just ask that, Lord, you would accomplish your purposes right now through your word. You know every single person in this room. You know our hearts, our souls, our past, our present. You know our future. You know everything that we have done, everything that has been done to us, and everything that will occur in the future. Lord, and we know that you are sovereign over all things and it is mysterious on how you know all things, ordain all things, and work in all things. And Lord, so we know that there's not a moment in all of creation and all of time where you have not ruled perfectly. And yet we also know there's great sin in this world. And yet we know in mysterious ways you use all of it ultimately for the advancement of the gospel and for your glory, and so that there would be a people one day joined around your throne for all of eternity singing praises to you. And so as we come into your word today, may we hear who you are. May we know why you have created us, what that purpose is for. May we better understand, understand sin and the deception of it. And may we know the hope of the gospel. In your name, Jesus, amen. Y'all may be seated. Um, so we're going to start, and I just want to step back kind of from our text and look at all of Genesis 1, uh, and just start with God is the creator of all things. That's clearly the point of the first chapter in Genesis that's the biblical account of creation. We see that creation comes into existence by the power and the authority of God's word. We see that whatever God wills happens. Isn't that pretty crazy? Whatever he wills happens. And in Genesis 1, we see that it's communicated that God created all things in six days. Day 1, he created light. Day 2, waters in the heavens. Day 3, land and flowers, trees and vegetation. And then day 4, 5, and 6 goes back and fills in on the very things that were made in day 1, 2, and 3. So in day 4, the moon, the stars, and the sun. Day 5, the fish and the birds. Day 6, Animals and humanity. And after each day, God said it was good. Side note, though, just verses 6 through 8, which would be Monday, it does not say it was good. Just saying, it's not there. There is theological reasons why we don't have to like Mondays. Total side note, that's free for you. Um, but... What we do see as we go through that everything, makes, everything God makes is good. 
Everything God makes is beautiful, and clearly this chapter is given so we would know God is creator. He has all authority. He is all powerful. He's infinite in wisdom. All of creation is dependent upon God. Everything comes into existence by his word, and everything is sustained by his word. You go to Colossians, you go to Hebrews, where it talks about Jesus sustains all of creation. There's a lot that we could say there. But I just want to start, we, we, we clearly understand God is the creator, the ruler, with all wisdom. He has created everything. And so now let's move into our text, particularly verses 26 to 31, and we see that God created man in his image. And I just want to point out four truths that we see because God created man in his image. Number one, man is created. We just need to acknowledge that. Three times, verse 27, we're told that God created humanity. Humanity is the intentional design of God. We, are not, we did not randomly and chaotically evolve. We were divinely designed by the one true all-powerful God. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing, seeing eye God has made. Psalm 139 says that God has formed my inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb. That is true for every single person in all of creation. God forms us. He knits us together. Mankind is the result of God's intentional design. So that's number one. We just got to realize the reason we're here is because God made us. But number two, man is made in God's image. So man is different from everything else in creation. In verse 26, uh, it says that we are made in God's likeness twice. In verse 27, we're told we're made in God's image. And then if we were to fast forward to chapter 2, verse 7, we're given a little more detail in how God created man. And we actually see that he breathes life into man. So the rest of creation is all spoken into existence by, but man is made different. There's an intimacy. There's a purpose. There's a position that man has been given by God that distinguishes him from the rest of all creation. So while there are great similarities biologically and everything between us and other creatures, we are also vastly different. Why? Because we're made in God's image. So what does it mean we're made in God's image? And there's so much we could say here, uh, but we're going to be, uh, we're just going to narrow it down really just to uh, a couple things. Um, when we talk about the fact that we image God, it means that man reflects God. We have to understand. So man reflects God. That's number three. To be made in God's image, we reflect God. And so what do we reflect? And so that's a, a huge question that we could spend all day looking at. But I just want us to zero in. What are we talking about in chapter one of Genesis? Genesis 1 primarily speaks of God's rule, dominion, power, and authority. I mean, he is speaking creation. He has the power, the authority to create all things. And then right after, or then verse 26, right after we're told that we're made in the image of God, we read that man is given dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing in the earth. And then in verses 28 and 29, right after we are told we're made in God's image, again, we're told that God has given all things in creation to be under the 
rule of God. God says we have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in verse 29, God says he's given every green plant or every plant and everything that has breath to man for food. So the very, very minimum, if all we knew was Genesis 1, if all we knew We would say, to image God means we're made to reflect his rule and his power and his dominion over creation. Clearly, we would see that. And this is not an achievement of man, but it's a gift from God. Like, we did not distinguish ourselves from the rest of creation. God distinguished man from the rest of all creation by making him in his image. And we see that rule and dominion is given because we image God. We were created to represent God's rule, his righteousness, his goodness, his justice, his kindness, his love, his wisdom. Every action, every word, every thought man has is to reflect the character of God. So when we're talking image, we need to think reflection. And one of the things we're clearly told to reflect here is that we should reflect the rule of God His righteousness. But we also need to know that man enjoys God. See, the Bible says that God is holy, he's righteous, he's love, pleasures forevermore, we're told that are his right hand. We're told that he has no darkness within him, he is perfect in every way. He is fully satisfied in himself and content in his glory. You know, he has no needs no deficiencies at all. So we must understand that for humanity to be made in this God's image is not some joyless, emotionless responsibility. Rather, man has been given the most exalted position in all creation. He shares in the glory of the one true, supreme, all-glorious creator and king. So man's full of joy in life. We need to understand that when we're coming in to Genesis 1 and 2, man's not going, oh, I guess this is my role. I wish I was kind of more like, you know, the giraffe or something. In fact, at the end of Genesis 2, we see that both men and women are naked in the Garden of Eden. Naked. It's a fun word. Naked. You know, if you say naked enough, it kind of makes you think, like, it's just weird and kind of makes you chuckle. Naked. But, but the reason that we're told is not, it's not a joke, but rather it's a picture of the perfection and joy which humanity shares in at this moment. I mean, they have no shame. There's no guilt. They're not self-conscious. Eve's not going, what's he thinking? Adam's not going, does she like me? Their thoughts are pure. They're in perfect joy and satisfaction as they reflect the image of, I mean, can you even imagine such existence, such perfection, such acceptance to be fully known? Such comfort, such joy. In verse 28, God tells man to multiply and fill the earth. We, we share in God's image So we also, that means, share in his desire for him to be glorified in all of creation. 
And so what we understand is that God has created man for the purpose of man multiplying, making more image bearers, so that one day all of creation would be filled with those who image God, glorifying God. So we see that sex then is a gift from God to man. It's a gift for the purpose of not only pleasure, but of filling creation with those who radiate forth the love and rule and righteousness of God. Like that's what we have here. We have a God who's all glorious, makes people in his image so they would make more people in God's image so everything is praising the very glory of God. And we know that God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled because when you go to Revelation 21 and 22, what do you have? A new heavens, new earth, filled with people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, exactly what Jeff wrote, read earlier from Revelation 7, filling creation with those who image God, proclaiming him for all of eternity. So that's how we start. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Picture of absolute bliss, joy, beauty, comfort, peace. So then we just have to say, so what happened from there to here? Because we we have a day where we're talking about abortions, where we're talking about the need for sanctity of human life. So how do we go from a humanity that basks in the glory of God, delighting in him, to a humanity that rejects God, and is entrenched in sin, guilt, shame, hurt, pain, tragedy, and trauma? Like, how do we go from a humanity that reflects his rule to a humanity that rebels against his rule? How do we go from a humanity that delights in multiplying to a humanity that kills babies? How do we now live in a world in which individual rights trump the right to life? How do we live in a world in which men pursue one-night stands for their pleasure rather than valuing, loving, and protecting women? Like, how do we live in a world in which a woman would think that a baby would be a nuisance and interference into her life and to her desires and hopes? How do we live in a world in which a woman would feel so lost, so hopeless, so scared, so helpless, that she would think abortion was her only viable option? How do we live in a world that justifies the killing of babies in order to avoid more suffering and trauma? How we live in a world in which we can justify the killing of a child who's diagnosed with Down syndrome. How we live in a world in which a baby, an image bearer of God, I mean, could be pulled apart in a mother's womb. I mean, you just think, like, how do we go? Genesis 1 and 2. They're naked in perfect joy and peace, multiplying for the glory of God. To now where we are today. And there's one word, and you know the word, and it's sin. It corrupts everything. God's given humanity rule and dominion over all creatures, over all areas of creation. In Genesis 2, we see there's one thing he holds back. One thing. There's a tree in the Garden of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives everything to man, but to this he says, I'm not going to give to you. You are not to eat of it, because if you eat of it, you will die. So God's not holding back good things from him, is he? He's holding back death from man. We need to understand that God's not holding back. He's not keeping pleasures from man. He's keeping death from man. 
And by not eating this tree, of this tree, man demonstrates his obedience, his submission to God as true creator and king. By not eating of this tree, man demonstrates that he knows he's a creature, that God is creator, and thus he is dependent upon God. By not eating of this tree, he worships God at every moment of the day. But then we come into Genesis 3. And we see that Satan, in a form of a snake, slithers into the garden where he will tempt Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you have your Bibles, just turn Genesis 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. I just want us to see just how this works. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So two truths I want you to see about sin, just two. Number one, sin exalts self and dethrones God. Sin exalts self. So verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food. So she took it, she ate it, she gave it to Adam, and he ate it. No longer listening to God, no longer obeying God, no longer submitting to God. She replaced God with herself. That's what sin does to every one of us. We say, well, I'm going to forget this whole creator-creature distinction, and I'm now going to become king. And there's no one over me, so I now determine what is right and what is wrong. And as soon as we move God, we, we remove God as creator and ruler, you can justify whatever you want. Everything is subjective at that moment. We determine who has value and who does not. We determine that it is just to murder a baby in order to avoid suffering. We determine that it is just to murder a baby because they have Down syndrome. Rather than protect life for God's glory, we decide we take life for our glory. We have to see sin will always exalt ourselves to the point that we now take the position of God of determining what is right and wrong and God is no longer there And Planned Parenthood and abortion is a means in which we seek to dethrone God and exalt ourselves. I mean, Planned Parenthood represents the rebellion of Satan in this world. I mean, just think about it. Satan is an angel. He's he's created in the very presence of God. And rather than than following and, and worshiping God, he rejects God's rule and is thrown down. And now it leads man to reject God's rule so that rather than honor God and do what God has called us to do, we would rebel against his commands and purposes. And just to be clear, this is true of every sin. So we're focusing it on abortion today. But every sin is where we seek to exalt ourselves over God. So that's number one. We just have to see that 
This is, this is how abortion begins to work its way. Sin has exalted us, so we now have the right to decide these things. Number two, sin beautifies itself and condemns God and his purposes. I mean, have, have you ever, you remember carnival mirrors? I think I've used this illustration here, I don't know how many times, several times. But they're, they're kind of fun. They're weird. Like you go stand and you can either be like really tall and thin, or you're like really short and squatty, or you're just kind of twisted. Like those mirrors just, they kind of do whatever they want. They, they alter your appearance. And that's exactly what sin does. It changes the way we see things. It makes the things that God forbids desirable and the things that he commands detestable. You get that? It makes the things that God forbids desirable and the things that he commands detestable. Look back at verse 6, Genesis 3. There's one. We're going to look at three things here. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. But is it? No. Genesis 2, you eat of it, you will die. The tree's arsenic. It's got skull and crossbones basically on it. And yet, now, it says that the woman saw the tree was good for food. Sin makes desirable that which God detests. We have to see that. Verse 6, delight to the eyes. Sin turns what is ugly into something beautiful. It turns what is beautiful into that which is ugly. So just, just think through this for a moment. I think um, Amelia alluded to this a little bit and talking about there's a multitude of reasons why women will come to like Planned Parenthood and consider abortion. And we often, we only think of, of one way. There's a multitude of ways. I mean, think of a 15-year-old girl who just realized she was pregnant. Her world turns upside down. She's worried what her friends will think. She's scared to death to tell her parents. The boyfriend she has says, I'm not ready to be a dad. You should have an abortion. Isolation, fear, shame, guilt consume her thoughts. She's never even considered having an abortion. But now, abortion's being presented as her savior. It's the only thing that will return her life back to what she considers normal. Abortion begins to look good and acceptable. It becomes a delight to her eyes. Did you see how that happens? Like, it's so easy, I think, for us to say, well, just, just women are going just because they only want their, their, they just want to do what they want to do. And, and there are some who are like that, but there is a host of reasons why a woman would come into Planned Parenthood. And we have to understand that sin is making this look desirable for whatever reason it is. We must understand that sin beautifies itself. And look at verse 6. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Sin promises life. Sin promises assurance. Sin promises hope. Sin promises things will go back to normal. But notice what happens. Genesis 3, 7. After Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and then they're filled with shame and guilt. At that point, that's not normal. All of a sudden, they know they're naked. That's not normal. They feel dirty. That's not normal. They hide in the bushes. Never done that before. That's not normal. But that's what sin promised. But now they're in a whole new world. 
where everything that was promised is gone because sin never delivers. Sin is never a savior. It will never give you lasting joy and hope. Sin never erases pain and shame. Never erases it. And so we know when we talk about an issue like this, there is a lot of pain. There's a lot of shame. There's guilt. There's hurt. There's scars that run deep. And there are many, many who have had abortion, and they go, I know that there is no forgiveness for me. How could God love me after this? I mean, have you, have you heard those voices? Maybe it's not abortion. Maybe it's something else. But sin wants to whisper these lies that we would say, other people might be able to receive grace, but I can't. What I have done has gone too far. And what I want you to know is that no matter what sin has been committed, there is hope. And that hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is not a trite answer or an oversimplification. The only answer to sin is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The only answer to our sinful nature is the new nature that we're given in Jesus. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven if we come to Jesus. Do you know that? There is no sin. So whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, whatever your past is, whether it's abortion or anything, there is no sin that if we come to Jesus cannot be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross to forgive liars, murderers, thieves, adulterers, those who've committed abortion, and everything else. Like We need to know that. The whole reason Jesus comes to earth is so he would go to the cross and stand in your place and my place where he would absorb God's wrath that you and I deserve for all the sins, whatever it is that we've done. So he does that. Only Jesus takes away shame and guilt. Only Jesus has paid the price for our sins. There's no other price, there's no other payment that is acceptable before God. The only one who can propitiate, absorb the wrath of God for our sins is Christ. So I just, you need to know abortion's not an unforgivable sin. And we think that. Or maybe there's something else in your, in your history and go, this is unforgivable. If you've had an abortion, there is comfort, there is grace, there is mercy, and there is forgiveness in Jesus alone. Ephesians 2. One of my favorite passages, the first few verses, it says that we are sons of disobedience, and it says we're all children of wrath. That's how it describes humanity. This is who we all are. We're sons of disobedience, meaning we just disobey God. Remember, sin will always do that which God forbids. That's what it desires. And so we constantly are on a track of disobedience. But then we're told this in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. So we're dead, and then God gives grace and mercy out of the abundance of his love so then we would be made alive, no matter what the sin is. So we need to know, so there's three... We're going to try to make it through three things. Three things that, that I want us to know 
as we think through this topic. Number one, the gospel redeems us so we will reflect and enjoy the glory of God. So what, we, what we've seen is we were made to image God, right? We've seen that clearly, Genesis 1. But then we see sin comes in, Genesis 3, and it's disrupted that. And we know that we no longer rightly image God. We disobey God. There, there's some level in which we image God, but no longer do we do it as we were created. But listen to what Paul says. And he's talking to the church. He says, I want you to know what's true of you. So he says this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's unique. We were made in his image, sin disrupted that, so we no longer rightly image God. Jesus then comes, dies on the cross, so we could be saved and forgiven, and when we trust in him, he begins to work and change who we are, that by degree, by degree, by degree, by degree, by this slow transformation process, we're being made like Jesus. We're being made back into the image of God. I don't mean back as in back to Adam, because Adam had the ability to sin, but we're being made like Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, we will see him as he is because we are made like him. We will forever live in his presence, fully enjoying God in absolute joy and comfort and grace and peace for all of eternity, never to sin again, never to fall from the image of God. That's what Christ has done. And so there is hope for every single one of us that when we are saved, we become slowly transformed in the image of God and that when Jesus returns, we're glorified at that moment. I don't even know what that necessarily looks like. I mean, we're told certain things, but it's going to be an absolute perfection. Whatever good it was in Genesis 1, we know it will be exponentially better because we will live in the very presence of of God at all times by the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's love for us. So we need to know, our, our sin won't say, well, that's not for me, that's for others, or that can't be applied to me, I'll be in a lesser heaven, or, or whatever. But what we see is that this truth applies to every single believer. When you believe in Christ, he begins to transform you at that moment into the very image of his son so that you will forever be treated as sons. Isn't that amazing? So that as Jesus, the son of God, has the status of sonship before the father, so we will also. And all that Christ has, we share with him because we are not sub-heirs but co-heirs with Christ. So that's the hope. That's, that's what we need to know. So we have, we have this issue of abortion which tries to wreak havoc in the world, but we have something so much better the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the hope that we have. That's what we must carry forth. That's what we must speak and proclaim, not only to those who are seeking abortion, but to every single person on this earth, because the only hope any of us have is the grace of Jesus Christ. There's two other things that I want us to know, and, and it's really important that we know these so we can practice them because if we do so, we'll be able to help 
those who are considering abortions and we'll be able to help prevent abortions. And this is like the smallest little appetizer to like the February 20th. So we'll expound on both these more there. Number one, the church must reflect the patience and gentleness of God. We have to be willing to listen. We must, not, we must realize we don't know why someone is thinking about having an abortion. And we must not judge them already. It doesn't mean we're affirming anything. But it means we're ready to listen. And we're ready to understand what are they thinking. How did they get to where they're at at this moment? And I want you to think, when Adam and Eve sin and God enters into the garden, what does he do? He asks questions. He's patient and he's gentle. When Jesus sees the Samaritan woman, the woman who has had five husbands and is sleeping with other men, what does he do? He's patient, he's kind, he's gentle, and he asks questions. Jesus isn't light on sin, but he is heavy on grace. You get that? Like, we're not light on sin. Like, we, we don't affirm or condone any sin, but, but we don't come down and judge, especially those outside the church who are wrestling with these issues, but we are heavy on grace. And so we must be gentle. We must be patient if we're going to understand why people are where they are and how do we actually get to speak the truth of the gospel. Number three, the last one, the church must practice regular confession of sin. So I was sitting with Amelia and Carolyn on Tuesday night. I don't know where Carolyn is. She's in here somewhere. Oh, there she is. I think it was Tuesday night. We're together, and we're talking through today, and we're talking through uh, February 20th. And Amelia said something um, that hurt. And she said this, and not the exact wording, but pretty close. She said the church in many ways has pushed many women into the doors of Planned Parenthood. And I just, I just want to like recoil them. Like, That's not true. Like there's no way. But I want you to think like, how would a church do that? It would do it if, if we begin to think we're self-righteous if we don't see ourselves as sinners in need of grace, if we act like we don't sin, if we don't confess sin to one another, if we're not a people who confess sin, then we certainly will not be a safe place for sinners. I mean, think about this. Wherever you're at in life, if your daughter becomes pregnant at 15 years old, would she come to you? Or would she hide it? What would she do? If we do not confess sin with one another, I'll just say, if we don't confess sin, we are self-righteous. And if you're sitting here, you're like, I don't remember the last time I confessed, you're self-righteous. You're struggling with that is your sin right now, so you can go to your wife or your husband or your parents or you know, this person next to you. And you can confess that. But if we're going to be a safe place for sinners, if we're going to be a place where those who are hurting, who have deep scars, are going to open up, then they need to know this is a people made, created by grace. We don't know everything. We don't have everything together. 
and I actually consider it quite a privilege. Um, uh, Chris and Ozon elders, and then Adiel and Aaron. There's Aaron. I don't know where Adiel is. Oh, he's over here. I, I see you. He sees me in the camera. Um, man, even when we're together, we've been able to talk about sin on a regular basis. I want you to know, on the elder board, we do that on a regular basis. One of the reasons we have table groups is so we would talk about sin on a regular basis. One of the things we do things called like D groups, men getting together with men and women with women, is so we can wrestle with sin because we are not perfect. We need grace every single moment of every single day. And the beauty is, is we have a king, going back to Hebrews, we, we have a high priest who now is at the right hand of God, who says, you can boldly come to the throne of God, and he will give us grace every single day. We are a people saved by grace. We're a people given grace every day. And we are a people that Ephesians 2, 7 says, we will receive grace for all of eternity in Jesus Christ. We never stop being a people of grace, which thus means we must give grace to others. And so let us remember that. Let us remember that there is a God who loves us and has sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sins that we could be forgiven, that we could be saved, that he would wash our shame and our guilt away, and that we would be one day perfectly transformed into his image, and we would live with him for all of eternity. And let us share that hope at every moment of every day. So I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we're going to take communion and celebrate the hope we have in Christ. Our Father, Father, we just praise you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. We praise you that you are gracious and good and patient and gentle. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you that, God, you have saved us. And I pray that every single person here would know that your son Jesus is the only means in which we are forgiven and washed clean. And if there is anyone here who has, does not know you, if there is anyone here who God just looks at the blackness of the sin in their life and Lord thinks that, Lord, they're unforgivable, Lord, I pray that you would just shout forth the truth of your gospel in their heart and their ears this morning and they would confess that you are God and Savior and they would believe in your son Jesus and experience that comfort. And I pray that we'd be a people as we go out today, that we'd be not quick to judge, but we'd be quick to give grace and that we would love others and that we would enter into every conversation we have with the desire to love and to give grace and to lead people to the gospel. Lord, help us to do that. In your name, Jesus, amen.